Hi, Joel Johnson here with the Rainmaker Evolution podcast. Before I get into what an awesome show this is going to be and our special guest, do me a favor, rate the podcast. Go to wherever you're listening to this, rate the podcast, and then share it with at least two friends. They are going to get a lot out of this because I have a special guest today. Today, we're going to talk about building a team. We're going to talk about things to look for in team members and how you can develop leaders. We are also going to get into what it's like to visit the White House with your team and meet with the president. My special guest today is Gino Ariema. Gino is one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time. Ask any person that's in the game. Uh, they will tell you that if they know about the game. He had a winning streak of 111 games straight. His winning record is 88 and a half percent. He doesn't just talk about basketball here. As I mentioned earlier, he talks about what it is like to build a team, what it is like to find leaders and let them develop. And then he gets into some really interesting conversations about his mom, multiple visits to the White House. It's going to be really good. So sit back and enjoy this podcast with Gino Ariema. Well, as mentioned earlier, I'm really excited and honored today to have Gino Ariema on with us on our podcast. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. We're going to talk about basketball, and I'm sure he'll have some um, some advice and some interesting commentary for us. So, Gino, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Joel. Thank you. I was reading up on you uh, a little bit, and I did not know this. You were actually born in Italy and came over here, I think, when you were seven years old. Is that right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's true, in uh, uh, November of uh, 1961. And I guess, how did you end up, because uh, I don't think basketball, I know basketball is big now in Italy. I don't know if it was back then, but how did you end up with basketball as your, I'm assuming that's probably your favorite sport, I would guess? <laughs> I, I would say that it just kind of happened, you know, uh, my mother would tell me that uh, in our town, there being a basketball court, uh, soccer fields, that, you know, the soccer fields were obviously part of the culture of Italy, but the basketball court, I think, was left over from some Americans being stationed there during the war. And so this is the late 50s. And I don't know, she just said I always enjoyed, you know, as a kid, you know, five, six years old, just walking over and, you know, spending a lot of time watching people play sports. And, um, you know, when I got to, when I got to the U S it was more baseball for me because I had never, never seen it, didn't know anything about it. Uh, and when I first saw it, first played it, I fell in love with the game. So, uh, growing up, I would say that my favorite sport to play was baseball. I mean, uh, and, and obviously, you know, I, I, I enjoyed, you know, basketball, but I don't, I don't think I loved basketball as much as I loved baseball. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But you, you played basketball in high school, correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how did the transition go from player to coach? Talk talk us through that, because I'm interested in not only what draw you, drew you to coaching, but how did you know early or did you know early that you were going to be good at it? I was drawn to it by just association, a guy that that I met in college. He was a recreational coach you know he coached in rec leagues and he ended up getting a job as a high school as a high school coach and and asked me if I would be willing to to help him out at first I you know I wasn't really thrilled about it I I, I really didn't set my sights on being a coach you know I just kind of thought I was going in a different path and and he stayed after me and stayed after me and kept asking me and kept asking me and I finally relented and I went to go help him a little bit, and I found out that I enjoyed it. 
and that the kids were receptive. And I liked it. The more I did it, the more I liked it. Then it became something that I was, I wanted to do more and more. And I started to gravitate towards, you know, wanting to find even more opportunities to coach. And so what started out as something that initially I had no interest in became something that, you know, if people would ask me when I was 23, what do you do for a living? I would say, I'm a basketball coach. Even though, you know, I was a part-time high school coach, I always considered myself a coach from that point on. Did you? Do you think that uh, in, in your case and then in other cases, is there a part of coaching and being a successful coach that's just a natural talent? Or is it something you and, and you think others have to work hard at learning? Or is there a combination of the two? Because obviously you have this chemistry you know, we've been, I've been privileged to come to some of the practices uh, and see some of the behind the scenes with, you know, the way you and Chris run the team. And you have this clear chemistry with the kids. And do you think what it takes for you or a Pat Summit or somebody like that, that just has this tremendous long-term track record and this attraction to be able to get the most out of a student is how much of that is learned and how much of that is just a natural thing that some people are just born with? It's probably a little bit of both. There, there are some some things that you are blessed to be, you know, God given. Being able to communicate with people, being able to relate to uh, individuals in a certain way that you know endears you to them or inspires them from from you know you being around them. I, I think some of that is 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 given to you, and some is you you acquire over a period of time from trial and error. You know, you learn what works, what doesn't work, what techniques are better than others. But I would say that for the most part, most successful coaches do have a, a natural instinct for the demands of the job. I think if you're the kind of person that has to study, you know, how to be a coach, I think that's going to be a very, very difficult, you know, it's going to be very difficult for you to have a tremendous success if, if you don't already have the natural gifts. That, that coaches all have. Do you subscribe to the theory, Gino, that you shouldn't get too close to, in your case, your players or with somebody that's a corporate uh, leader, too close to the people that work for you? Do, do you subscribe to that? Well, I, I think each person that you that you deal with, each player, has the kind of relationship with you that they want to have. In other words, if you remember when you were in high school or college, there were some teachers that you wanted to get to know. There were some teachers you wanted to spend more time with either before class, after class, whatever the case may be, because you enjoyed their company or you found them helpful in some way or, or you just were constantly learning from them or whatever the case may be. I think players are the same way. There's some players that they feel better when they feel like they have a close connection to you. And there's other players that feel like they don't need that. I would say that in the corporate world, if you have people that you are managing you know, and you're trying to get the best out of them, having a, a relationship with them that goes beyond, hey, I'm the boss, do what I say. It can only make your business or your team stronger. I would certainly hope that there's a some kind of a relationship between, let's say, the coach and the assistant coaches, the manager and the assistant managers. Or there has to be a close working relationship. Whether or not that turns into a off the court, you know, relationship where you get together and go out to dinner or you spend, you know, some non work time together, that's you know, that's an added bonus if it works, but that's not necessary. But you do have to have I think, the ability to have that kind of relationship. And in today's world, believe me, it's not the easiest thing in the world to pull off. But I, I, I do think that, that 
people that are able to pull that off successfully are the ones that have the, the greatest amount of success. You know, when you get somebody on the team, you recruit somebody on the team, how do you find the leadership qualities when they may have come from an environment that, um, you know, a high school coaching environment that maybe is very different than yours? How, how do you, do you look for leaders? What do you, what do you look for when you recruit a kid? I don't know that you can tell, generally speaking, who a leader is while you're recruiting them. You just don't get to spend enough time with them. You don't get to observe enough of them, you know, off the court. But what you can tell is some of the things that we've been talking about, and that is, are they good with with their teammates? Do they inspire their teammates to be better? Do they interact in a positive way with their teammates? You know, are they someone that communicates well with their coaching staff? You know, you can tell certain things about them, whether they're a great teammate. And generally speaking, if they're a great teammate, then they have the potential to be great leaders. Just as I think a kid who just wants to be an individual and wants to do everything themselves and doesn't necessarily work well with others. I don't know that that person, they can, but I don't know that generally they turn out to be great leaders. Is there room for that on your, on, in your program? Is there room for somebody that's, uh, and I'm thinking of the NBA where you have some teams that are phenomenal teams, but they're completely built around one person that may or may not be liked. Um, does that work in your program? I think that the, the idea of liked, sometimes kids, people in general, I think sometimes they confuse the word like with the word respect. In, in other words, if your best player is not respected by the rest of the team, then that person can't be a great leader. Whether they're liked or not, that's a bonus. So you say, well, I don't, I don't necessarily like that kid, but that kid's a great leader. Now, I wouldn't want to spend any time off the court with them, right? and I don't particularly admire some of the things that they do, but when it comes time to winning games, that kid's a great leader. We really need her on the floor, or she's the reason why we win. So trying to teach people the difference between being liked and being respected for what you do, I think that's an important differentiation that has to be made. And kids especially have to understand that. Kids go out of their way to be liked. If you're going out of your way to be liked, that means you're probably not able to say and do some things that need to be said and done to be successful. So they'll like you, but they won't respect you because you don't have the, the ability to to get things done because you're afraid to have the tough conversation. So if you're liked and respected, then I think you've got the best of both worlds. And I've, had, I've certainly had my share of great, great leaders who were both liked, loved, and respected by their teammates. That's a great differentiation, though, in my world, too. Is it, you know, does somebody, do they try hard to be liked and they are not a good manager of a department or something like that because they're trying so hard to be liked? So I... I, I appreciate that answer. Do you change your approach to coaching based on the players that you have on the team? I think you have to. I, I think you have to, you have to change year to year. You have to change during the year. There's ebbs and flows of a season that your approach in the preseason may not work during the season. Your approach during the season may not work in the playoffs, or you can have the same approach preseason during the season and in the playoffs. I think you have to read your team and see what do they need from me. Each year you have a different group of players. Even if they're the same kids that came back from last year, they're a different group. And you have to be able to read them and you have to say, okay, what approach does this team need from me? Just like, hey, can we run the same offense we ran last year? No, we can't. Why not? Well, we lost these two kids and we added these two and it doesn't work as well. So we have to find... Now, what you can change is what your standards are. So 
your approach may change, your offense may change, your defense may change, whatever the case may be. But your standards and what you believe in and what you expect from your from your team, that can't change. You have to stand fast with those things, and that's what we try to do here. We, we have certain standards that never change day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year. I remember coming to a practice, and I was just amazed at uh, at the effort that the players had. And uh, I, th- I think practices, if I'm not mistaken, run about an hour and a half. At least the ones we were, the one I was invited to with some of our clients ran for about an hour and a half. And those kids did not stop moving. I mean, they would stop for maybe 30 seconds to get a drink of water. But it was just, I, I, I was shocked at the pace. Um and also the graciousness of the players, you know, they came over and greeted our clients and spent some time with us and um, just very, very impressive. What challenges have you had to deal with with the COVID situation? Obviously, the season was affected last year. Um, we hope the schedule doesn't get affected this year, but already the fans will not be able to uh, um, to be there, at least for the beginning of the season. How has that affected the kids? Obviously, uh, it's had a detrimental effect in a lot of ways. Their ability to interact uh, normally with each other uh, has been compromised. Their ability to interact with the rest of the student body, their ability to go and come as they please, things that they would take for granted, those, those are no longer givens. So that's a negative impact. You're cloistered more than you know, you've ever been in your life. You don't have as many releases for whatever it is. You tend to live a very sheltered life of you don't even get a chance to get up in the morning and get dressed and go to class if a lot of your classes are online. So all the things that make you a social person and make you a better individual, all those things have been taken away from you. So now we come to practice and we're asking our kids to engage and communicate and interact. And it's one of the few places where they get a chance to do that. And, and then the other part is the fact that I'm sure they're, they're going back to their apartments or they're living in a world where they could wake up tomorrow and say the season's over. Uh, you have no idea. So that can't be good, the uncertainty of it all, that you know one, two kids, for whatever reason, test positive and the season is in jeopardy. And the fans have been affected by it. And it has been a traumatic experience for a lot of people. Fortunately, you know, no one's gotten really sick. No one's had to be hospitalized. No one's in danger. And there have been people, obviously, in the United States where that's not the case. So it's good for them, but it's also very, very stressful and very difficult for them at the same time. I remember uh, when this started, I told my employees, because you know, the, a big event for my parents in their lives was when JFK got assassinated. I was much too young to really understand what was going on. Um, as a matter of fact, I was didn't even... I think I was one years old when, when that happened. Um, for me, it was 9-11. That was the, I will never forget exactly where I was, like so many of us and so on. And, you know, for our younger employees, um, I remember when this happened and I said, you know, this may be your 9-11. This may be that event that you remember where you were and what happened for the rest of your lives. And, and uh, I, I just, uh, it's, it's an amazing time that we're going through and I can't imagine what it's like to, uh, you know, to run your team, uh, during this time and to try to somehow, do you try to create more opportunities for the kids to, to socialize? What, how do you, how do you enter into that, that need that they have? Hard to do because of all the protocols that are in place. All you can do is the best, you know, be the best version of, of, of yourself at practice and, and, you know, hope that the time that they spend together is, is productive and, 
you know, and this is a defining moment so far in their young lives. There may be more, but certainly this is a this is a huge defining period of their lives. As you mentioned, as was the Kennedy assassination. I was, you know, I, I was nine nine years old, maybe 1963, and, and I was 14 when Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed and, you know, 15 when the moon, la- you know, the, the moon landing. And I can go on and on and how many things have happened in my life. But for kids today, I don't know the defining moments for them. They were too young. A lot of, a lot of these kids weren't even born yet in, on 9-11. So this is their first traumatic experience with, hey, life isn't normal for a while. But it does make you, you know, appreciate the things that you do have. It does make you appreciate the fact that you're you're able to go to college. You're able to to be on a on a great team. You're able to to be around great teammates and things that maybe you used to take for granted. You appreciate a little bit more now. So you know they're going to come out of this on the other end, and they're going to be better better human beings for it. Speaking of things that kids will remember, you had the opportunity to take a team and and. Uh... Uh, go to the White House and meet President Obama. What was that like? <laughs> well, it was one of the, you know, it was one of the more rewarding experiences that that I've had. You know, President Obama was there for eight years, and during those eight years, we won six national championships. So we got to go down there six times during his eight years. I don't know that you know that's ever been the case with anyone. You know, maybe John Wooden back in the day, but I don't even know if teams went to the White House back then. And and I, I remember how excited everyone was, and I remember the, the feeling that you had when you knew that not only were you in the presence of the most powerful man in the world, you know, the president of your country, but a guy who really understood, appreciated, and, and was a basketball player himself. The kids were, were, were really enthralled in, in awe, whatever you want to say about about meeting him and one of those six times I had an opportunity to go and bring my mother with me. And, you know, that was kind of a, a surreal situation that, you know, a woman who was born in Italy and her town, her little town was liberated by the Americans from the Nazis. <laughs> and and she was one of those little kids, you know, catching chocolate bars from the tanks, you know, when the Americans rolled in. It's funny to have her so many years later standing in the White House, shaking hands with the president of the United States. It's just the weirdest thing that things that you would, would think are unimaginable actually came true simply because why? Because I happened to be the coach at the University of Connecticut and we won a national championship and the right president was in office at the right time to be to be able to do all that. It certainly was a, an amazing time in, in the lives of all those kids that had an opportunity to, to meet the president and Mrs. Obama. And, and um, I miss those days. And it's not... You know, and he's reminded me, it's not a coincidence that we haven't won since he left office. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. Well, hopefully that'll turn around pretty quick here. Well, um, you know, we won in 13, 14, and 15, and he left in 16. <laughs> uh, you, you had the streak going during that time. Did you ever get tired of people, the press or, or fans talking about the streak during that? What was it, 110, 111 games in a row you won? Yeah, and you know, the teams that we had at that time, they were very mature. They, they, we didn't really get caught up in all that. They really weren't fixated on the wins. It was more about this is what we do. You know, We show up, we play, we win. And there wasn't this apprehension of what if we lose, uh, this fear of, what if, 
There was none of that. There was, this is what we do. You know, we come to the arena, we play, and we win. So all that other stuff, that really was not part of, of our experience. When we, I guess for me, it was always, I knew it was going to end. I, I, I knew it wasn't going to last indefinitely. So I didn't take it very seriously. I just kind of roll with it, and I think the players roll with it. I think if we'd have put too much emphasis on it, if we'd have worried about it too much, we probably would have lost a lot sooner. Did you have to talk to the players about, I don't know, I guess having a having an expectation that might not have been healthy to just winning all the time? Or is that is that something that you want to foster that habit? I'm not sure if I'm asking the question the right way, but is is there some discussion about uh, this is not the way it's always going to be? Or, or is there a danger of people being overconfident? We've heard about that a lot in sports. I really didn't bring it up in those terms. What I did was I tried to create scenarios in practice where the players got a chance to experience losing. And by doing that, it, it reminded them that there's a winner and a loser in every contest. And after we watch films, you know, if we beat somebody and let's say win number 80 in a row, whatever the case may be, whenever we watch film, there would always be in a seven minute film, three minutes at least, where we would look like we didn't win the game, that there were so many things that we would pick out that we would say, this is unacceptable, this is unacceptable, this is unacceptable. So it became not, hey, we won the game, everything's great. No, this is what we did well, this is what we did wrong, let's go fix it. It was never, well, we won, let's overlook these things. So we were constantly going to practice every day to try to fix some things that we felt we could do better. So it was, there was never a talk about winning. It was always, these are the things that go into winning. So let's make sure we get better at those. Gino, we have a, a few minutes left here. Think about people past, maybe they're not even alive anymore or present. If you could talk to, let's say, three people, um, and again, whether it's in our lifetime or, or going back and, and just uh, either spend time with them, ask for advice, uh, just to get to know them, who, who, would, who would the top two or three people be? That's an interesting one. You know, I've always been fascinated by why did people do what they did? You know, why, why did people do what they did? And, and what was their thinking? You know, I'm a great student of history. I love history. And, you know, being Italian and, you know, it was all, I was always fascinated by the Roman Empire. <laughs> It's funny, it all fell apart, and it kind of reminds me of what's going on in this country right now, that all things fall apart from within, you know? So, you know, in reading, I remember reading about, you know, all of Caesar's conquests, and obviously that phrase, crossing the Rubicon, you know, it's like the point of no return. And I would like to ask him, I said, listen, when you brought your army right to the edge of the Rubicon, there was a moment where you knew, if I cross this river with my army, that's it. It's either the end of Italy or it's, the end, it's either the end of the Roman Empire or it's the end of me, one or the other. So either I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take over this, this operation or I'm dead. And, you know, to bring an army and fight your own countrymen at that time, what, what were you thinking? What, what did you think was going to happen? And were you prepared for either outcome? Were you aware of the significance of what that was and how that changed the trajectory of history? You know, things, things of that nature, I would, I would like to talk to you know, one of our founding fathers and sit down and say, so did you really think that a small group of radicals could actually take on the greatest superpower known at that time and win? What were you thinking? Like, tell the truth. Did you actually ever think that this could happen? 
that you could win. You know, and that's why I don't understand why people are all upset today when people gather and protest and, you know, there's talks of revolution about certain things because people want to be treated equally. This is how this country got started. <laughs> you know, if it wasn't for people acting like that, we'd still be speaking British, <laughs> you know, with a British yeah. accent. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, we didn't you know, get here by people just following the rules and conforming. What the hell? You know, this country was founded by people who said, you know, we don't feel like we're equally represented here. So why are people upset when people are doing that to us? Hell, <laughs> you know, so it was good for America at the time, but it's not good now. <laughs> so I would like I would I would love to ask those guys that question. Like, what the hell were you guys thinking, man? And And they pulled it off. They pulled it off. And yeah. You know, and, and to me, those kinds of questions are, are questions that fascinate me. And, you know, one of the other things that I've always just wondered, how in God's name could you do this? Like, I would like, like to ask Dwight D. Eisenhower, I would like to ask him and say, listen, when you were planning D-Day, obviously you were aware of how many American boys were going to die. And how does that feel, knowing you're sending that many boys to their death? Uh, to me, that's just, I couldn't imagine being in that situation. But I guess that's why I'm not, you know, a general. But those, to me, like I could sit for hours and listen to people tell me this is what my thought process was. This is how I came to, to reconcile myself with, with, with those things. And the same with Martin Luther King. You know, like if you could go back and look at it, you're putting your life on the line every time you open your mouth. After you saw what happened to Bobby Kennedy did, or to, uh, to John Kennedy, rather, did it dawn on you every time you gave a speech, every time you went to a rally that there was a bullet heading your way? Tell me what that felt like. Those are the things that, that to me, make me, you know, make me a, a student, make me a reader, make me, because I'm, I'm always curious about people's feelings, their thinking, their intent, their emotions. I just can't get enough of those things. It's amazing that when I talk to people that are great leaders, such as yourself, how many are constantly learning but also asking these kind of questions that you're bringing up, you know, that, that, that wanting to see more than just what we see on the surface. And um, I, th I think this is a great place to, to leave it for today, Gino. Um, this has been fantastic. Um, I appreciate the partnership we have with the, with the program there. Um, we wish you guys the best this year. Hopefully the fans will get back in the seats. I want to be back there in the seats pretty soon. My son who just graduated last year from UConn uh, enjoyed going to all those games. And so, Hopefully we can get back to that and get the students excited and certainly get the fans excited again, have something to rally around. So I appreciate you. I appreciate the program, Gino. This has been a real privilege and an honor, and we wish you the best. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and um, and especially during these during these difficult times. You know, uh, you know, a firm like Johnson Bernetti, we appreciate their support, and we appreciate the. The, the loyalty, because during these times, it's easy to say, look, I just can't do it. And it would be perfectly understandable. So to, to stick by us and be there and, and, and want to be there when the, the tide turns um, really means a lot to us. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be able to do this, and um, hopefully we can do it again at some point. I told you it was going to be great. So privileged to have Gino as a guest on my podcast. Once again, share this. I know your friends and family will get a kick out of it. And uh, as you know, it was really, really good stuff. This is Joel Johnson wishing you the best. And tune in next time for the Rainmaker Evolution Podcast. Mm -hmm.